I start at page 218. Verily, Allah commands you to give over the trust to those entitled to them, and that when you judge between men, you judge with justice. And surely, excellent is what Allah admonishes you with. Allah is all-hearing, all-seeing. The Holy Quran, chapter 2, verse 266. Chapter 5. Political Peace Political peace has to be carefully examined at the national and international level. As far as national politics is concerned, the foremost issue is which political system is good or bad for man. Again, we need to discover whether it is the failure of political systems and their inherent defects which are responsible for the miseries and dissatisfaction of a people, or is it something else? Is the system to be blamed or those who run it? Can immoral, selfish, greedy or corrupt political leadership which rises to power by democratic means be really good and beneficial for society as against benign dictatorship, for instance? In order to establish and guarantee international peace, Islam has a word of advice for the contemporary politicians. Islam lays extraordinary stress on introducing absolute morality to all spheres of human activity, politics being no exception. No outright condemnation of any political system. We begin with the observation that no political system is mentioned in Islam as the only valid system against all others. There is no doubt the Holy Quran speaks of a democratic system where the rulers can be elected by the people, but it is not the only system recommended by Islam, nor can it be the fundamental prerogative of a universal religion to choose a single system of government without due regard to the fact that it is not practically possible for a single system to be applicable to all regions and societies of the world. Democracy has not, has not developed enough even in the most advanced nations of the world, to reach the stage of polity, which is the ultimate political vision of democracy. With the rise of capitalism and the building of extremely powerful machinery in capitalist countries, truly democratic elections cannot be held anywhere. Add to this the growing problem of corruption and the coming into being of a mafia and other pressure groups. One can safely conclude that Democracy is not in safe hands even in the most democratic countries of the world. Then, how can it be suitable in the third world? So to say that Western democracy can prevail in African, Asian or South American countries or the so-called Islamic countries of the world would be tantamount to making a hollow and unrealistic claim. As far as I am concerned, Islamic teachings do not reject any political system of the world. But Islam leaves it to the choice of the people and historically established traditions prevailing in any country. What Islam emphasizes is not the form of government, but how the government should discharge itself. Provided a system of rule conforms to the Islamic ideal in the discharge of the trust owed to the subjects, different systems of government, such as feudal lordship, monarchy, democracy, etc., can be accommodated under Islam. Monarchy 
Monarchy is mentioned repeatedly in the Holy Quran without being condemned as an institution. A prophet of Israel reminds the Israelites of Talut. وَقَالَ لَهُمْ نَبِيُّهُمْ إِنَّ اللَّهَ قَدْ بَعَثَ لَكُمْ طَالُوتَ مَلِكًا قَالُوا أَنَّا يَكُونُ لَهُ الْمُلْكُ عَلَيْنَا وَنَحْنُ أَحَقُّ بِالْمُلْكِ مِنْهُ وَلَمْ يُؤْتَ سَعَةً مِنَ الْمَالِ قَالَ إِنَّ اللَّهَ اصْطَفَاهُ عَلَيْكُمْ وَزَادَهُ بَسْطَةً فِي الْعِلْمِ وَالْجِسْمِ وَاللَّهُ يُؤْتِي مُلْكَهُ مَنْ يَشَاءُ وَاللَّهُ وَاسِعٌ عَلِيمٌ Their Prophet said to them, Allah has appointed for you Talut as a king. They demurred, saying, How can he have sovereignty over us? while we are better entitled to sovereignty, sovereignty than he, and he has not even been granted abundance of wealth. He answered, Surely, Allah has granted him superiority over you and has given him a large portion of knowledge and strength, and Allah bestows sovereignty upon whom he pleases. Allah is Lord of vast bounty, all-knowing. Monarchy is also mentioned in the broader sense of the people being the monarch themselves. وَإِذْ قَالَ مُوسَىٰ لِقَوْمِهِ يَا قَوْمِ اذْكُرُوا نِعْمَةَ اللَّهِ عَلَيْكُمْ إِذْ جَعَلَ فِيكُمْ أَنْبِيَاءَ وَجَعَلَكُمْ مُلُوكًا وَآتَاكُمْ مَا لَمْ يُؤْتِ أَحَدًا مِنَ الْعَالَمِينَ Call to mind when Moses said to his people, O my people, recall the favor that Allah bestowed upon you when he appointed prophets among you and made you kings, and gave you that which he had not given to any other of the peoples. Again, sovereignties created or expanded by conquest in general do not enjoy a good reputation as we find in the verse about the Queen of Sheba advising her council. The Queen of Sheba's decision is set out as follows. قالت إن الملوك إذا دخلوا قرية أفسدوها وجعلوا أعزة أهلها أذلة وكذلك يفعلون She said Surely when mighty kings invade a country they despoil it and humiliate its leading people and that has been their way Kings can be good or bad of course just as democratically elected prime ministers and presidents can also be good or bad but the Holy Quran mentions a category of kings who were appointed by God. They are of a type, such as King Solomon, السلام, who was not only a king as understood by the Jews and Christians, but also a prophet of God according to the Holy Quran. This demonstrates that sometimes the offices of prophethood and sovereignty combine in one person and they are sovereigns directly commissioned by God. Another type of sovereignty through the authority of a prophet is mentioned in the Holy Quran. The following verse illustrates this fact. Ya ayyuhal ladhina amanu, ati'u allaha wa ati'u rasoola wa ulil amri minkum. Fa in tanaza'atum fi shay'in, farduhu ila allahi wa rasooli in kuntum tu'minuna billahi wal yawmil akhir. Thalika khayrun wa ahsanu ta'wila. O ye who believe, obey Allah and obey his messenger and those who are in authority among you. Then, if you differ in anything among yourselves, refer it to Allah and his messenger if you are believers in Allah and his messenger and the last day. That is the best and most commendable in the end.
We have chosen this verse not only to enumerate the categories of sovereignty, but to emphasize that, according to the Holy Quran, sometimes democratic choices are not necessarily always the right ones. It is quite likely that the overwhelming majority of people fail to recognize the essential qualities of great leadership in a person and protest against his election if he is imposed upon them. By all political criteria, his appointment would be decried as dictatorial. The choice may be against popular will, but is certainly not against public interest. The inherent weakness in the democratic form of elections is that the masses make their choice on superficial impressions and latest assessments and are incapable of judging for themselves the sound qualities of leadership which are best suited for their ultimate benefit. It seems that in the history of God's favored people, there have been times when their political survival required divine intervention. At such times, God takes the choice of a king, sovereign or leader into his own hands. It should not be inferred from this that all monarchs or leaders are divinely chosen by God or sanctified as such. This misconception, which has been common in the medieval Christian system, is not shared by the Holy Quran. For instance, King Richard laments, Not all the waters of rough, rude seas can wash the balm of an anointed king. Defining Democracy The concept of democracy, despite its Greek origins, is based on Abraham Lincoln's brief definition of government of the people, by the people, for the people. It is a very interesting cliché, indeed, but seldom applied in totality anywhere in the world. The third part of this definition for the people is very vague and rife with dangers. What can be declared to be for the people with full confidence? In a system of majority rule, it can very often happen that what is considered to be for the people is merely for the majority and not for the remaining minority. In a democratic system, it is also possible for vital decisions to be taken solely on the basis of absolute majority. Yet, when you further dissect and analyze the facts and figures, you discover that it was in reality a minority decision, democratically passed and imposed on the majority. One of the numerous possibilities is that the ruling party is voted into power on a first-past-the-post basis having obtained a minor majority in most constituencies. Again, if the turnout on polling day is rather low, it becomes dubious if the ruling party does in fact enjoy the support of the majority. Even if the party emerges with an overall majority of the electorate, many things may happen during the term of its tenure. Public opinion may change drastically so that the sitting government is no longer a true representative of a majority. After all, a gradual process of change of heart by the electorate manifests itself at each change of government. Even if the government remains popular with its voters, it is not unlikely that when certain key decisions are made, a considerable number of the ruling party's members do not agree at heart with the majority, but may have voted out of party loyalty. If the difference is in the strength of the ruling party over the opposition party or parties, then, more often than not, the so-called majority decision 
would in reality be a minority decision imposed on the people. It is also noteworthy that the concept of what is seen as good for the people changes from time to time. If decisions are not taken on absolute principles, but one, what one considers to be good for the people, or at least what the party considers to be good, it may lead to a constant shift in policy from time to time. What appears good today may be bad tomorrow and good the day after. For the man in the street, this can be a tricky situation. The experimentation of communism on such a large scale for over half a century was, after all, based on the same slogan of for the people. Not all socialist states were dictatorial. It should also be noted that the line separating the socialist states from the democratic ones, as far as government by the people is concerned, is very thin and sometimes non-existent. How can one condemn all world governments elected in socialist countries as having been brought to power not by the people? Of course, in a totalitarian state, it is possible to dictate the choice of candidates to the electorate in such a manner as leaves them little room to elect any alternatives. Yet, similar and other high-handed tactics can also be employed, save for a few exceptions in the Western world in countries with a democratic system of government. In fact, democracy in most parts of the world is not given a free hand and the elections are seldom by the people. With election rigging, horse trading, rule of fear through police tactics and other similar corrupt measures, the spirit and substance of democracy in the world are attenuated with adulteration so that there is little of democracy left in the end. Islamic Definition of Democracy According to the Holy Quran, people have a free choice to adopt any system of rule which suits them. Democracy, sovereignty, tribal or feudal systems are valid provided they are accepted by the people as the traditional heritage of their society. However, it seems that democracy is preferred and highly commended in the Holy Quran. The Muslims are advised to have a democratic system, though not exactly on the pattern of Western-style democracy. Islam does not present a whole definition of democracy anywhere in the Holy Quran. It only deals with principles of vital significance and leaves the rest to the people. Follow and benefit, or stray and be destroyed. Two Pillars of Islamic Concept of Democracy there are only two pillars to the Islamic concept of democracy. These are 1. Democratic process of elections must be based on trust and integrity. Islam teaches that whenever you exercise your vote, do it with the consciousness that God is watching over you and will hold you responsible for your decision. Vote for those who are most capable of discharging their national trust and are in themselves trustworthy. Implicit in this teaching is the requirement that the ones entitled to vote must exercise their voting right unless there are circumstances beyond their control or impediments exist in the exercise of that right. 2. Governments must function on the principle of absolute justice. The second pillar of Islamic democracy is that whenever you make decisions, make them on the principle of absolute justice, be the matter political religious, 
social or economic, justice may never be compromised. After the formation of government, voting within the party should also always remain oriented towards justice. Hence, no partisan interest or political consideration should be permitted to influence the process of decision-making. In the long run, every decision taken in this spirit is bound to be truly of the people, by the people, and for the people. Mutual consultation preferred. The substance of democracy is very clearly discussed in the Holy Quran, and as far as the advice to Muslims is concerned, though monarchy has never been ruled out as an irreligious and ungodly institution, democracy is most certainly preferred to all other forms of government. Describing the ideal Muslim society, the Holy Quran declares, فَمَا مِنْ شَيْءٍ الْحَيَاةِ الدُّنْيَا وَمَا عِنْدَ اللَّهِ خَيْرٌ وَأَبْقَى لِلَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَلَىٰ رَبِّهِمْ يَتَوَكَّلُونَ وَالَّذِينَ يَجْتَنِبُونَ كَبَائِرَ الْإِثْمِ وَالْفَوَاحِشَ وَإِذَا مَا غَضِبُوا هُمْ يَكْفُرُونَ وَالَّذِينَ اسْتَجَابُوا لِرَبِّهِمْ وَأَقَامُوا الصَّلَاةِ وَأَمْرُهُمْ شُورًا بَيْنَهُمْ وَمِمَّا رَزَقْنَاهُمْ يُنْفِقُونَ وَالَّذِينَ إِذَا أَصَابَهُمُ الْبَغْيُ هُمْ يَنْتَصِرُونَ Whatever you have been given is only a temporary provision of this life, but that which is with Allah is better and more lasting for those who believe and put their trust in their Lord, and those who eschew the grievous sin and indecencies, and when they are rough they forgive, and those who hearken to their Lord and observe prayer, and whose affairs are administered by mutual consultation and who spend out of whatever we have provided for them, and those who, when a wrong is done them, defend themselves. The Arabic words, Amruhum shura baynahum, whose affairs are administered by mutual consultation, relate to the political life of the Muslim society, clearly indicating that in matters of government, its decisions are made through mutual consultation, which of course, reminds one of the first part of a definition of democracy, i.e. government of the people. The common will of the people becomes the ruling will of the people through mutual consultation. The second part of a definition of democracy relates to by the people. This is clearly referred to in the following part of the verse, إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَأْمُرُكُمْ أَن تُؤَدُّ الْأَمَانَاتِ إِلَىٰ أَهْلِهَا Allah commands you to make over their trust to those best fitted to discharge them. This means that whenever you express your will to choose your rulers, always place the trust where it rightfully belongs. The right of the people to choose their rulers is of course mentioned, but incidentally, the real emphasis is on how one should exercise this right. The Muslims are reminded that it is not just a question of their personal will, which they can exercise in any way that they please, but far more than that, it is a question of national trust. In matters of trust, you are not left with many choices. You must discharge the trust with all honesty, integrity, and a spirit of selflessness. The trust must repose where it truly belongs. Many Muslim scholars quote this verse simply to indicate that 
Islam propounds the system and theory of democracy as understood in the Western political philosophy, but it is only partly true. The system of consultation mentioned in the Holy Quran has no room for the party politics of the contemporary Western democracies, nor does it give license to the style and spirit of political debates in democratically elected parliaments and houses of representatives. As we have discussed this aspect in detail, no more is necessary here. It should also be noted with regards to the second part of the definition of democracy that, according to this concept of mutual consultation, the right to vote belongs to the voters almost absolutely without any provisos or conditions infringing this right. According to the established norms of democracy, the voter can cast his vote in favor of a puppet or spoil or toss his ballot paper in a dustbin instead of the ballot box. He will remain irreproachable, nor can he be censured for violating any principles of democracy. According to the Quranic definition, however, a voter is not the absolute master of his vote, but a trustee. As a trustee, he must discharge his trust fairly and squarely and place it where he feels it truly belongs. He must be vigilant and aware that he will be held responsible for his act in the sight of God. In view of this Islamic concept, if a political party has nominated a candidate who an individual party member considers will fail to discharge his national trust, that member should quit the party rather than vote for someone who does not merit the trust. Loyalty to a party is not allowed to interfere in his choice. Again, a trust must be discharged in good faith. Therefore, every voter must participate fully in exercising his vote during the elections unless he is unable to do so. Otherwise, he will have failed in the discharge of his own trust. The concept of abstention or refraining from exercising the vote as happens in the USA where reportedly almost half the electorate actually bothers to vote has no room in the Islamic concept of democracy. The confusion as to the true nature of Islamic government. It is becoming popular among Muslim political thinkers of the contemporary age to claim that Islam stands for democracy. According to their political philosophy, God being the ultimate authority, sovereignty belongs to him. Divine authority. Absolute sovereignty belongs to God. The Holy Quran sums up his domain in the following verse. فَتَعَالَ اللَّهُ الْمَلِكُ الْحَقُّ لَا إِلَهَ إِلَّا هُوَ رَبُّ الْعَرْشِ الْكَرِيمِ Then exalted be Allah, the true King. There is no God but He, the Lord of the glorious throne. The fundamental principle that ultimately all rights to govern belong to God and He is the Lord of sovereignty is mentioned in different ways in the Holy Quran, of which the above verse is but one example. In the running of political affairs, God's sovereignty is expressed in two ways. 1. The law, that is Sharia, as derived from the Holy Quran, the conduct of the Holy Prophet ﷺ of Islam, and also from the established traditions attributed to him by early Muslims are supreme. They bear essential guidelines for legislation and no democratically elected government can interfere with the express will of God. 
Two, no legislative process would be valid in contradiction of the aforesaid principle. Unfortunately, however, there is no unanimity among the scholars of various sects of Islam as to what are the clear-cut laws that Sharia. On this, all the scholars are agreed that legislation is the prerogative of God and that he has expressed his will through the Quranic revelation to the holy founder of Islam. Regarding the manner in which Muslim governments should be, should be run, the popular idea is that in the day-to-day -day administrative matters, affairs and measures, the government, as representatives of the people, becomes instrumental in the expression of God's will. A sovereignty belongs to the people by way of delegated power, therefore, such a system is democratic. Mullahism This is the rigid view of the so-called orthodoxy who would come to an understanding with the modern democratic tendencies of the Muslim populace only on the condition that the mullah, that is clergy, be granted the ultimate right to judge the validity of democratic decisions on the basis of sharia. If accepted, this demand would be tantamount to placing ultimate legislative authority not in the hands of God but in the hands of the Orthodox or some other school of clergy. When you consider the awesome power placed in the hands in the background of fundamental differences prevailing among the Muslim clergy itself regarding their understanding of what is and what is not Sharia, the consequences appear horrendous. There are so many schools of jurisprudence among the orthodoxy. Even within each school of jurisprudence, the clergy is not always unanimous on every edict. Again, their position regarding what the actual will of God as expressed in Islamic Sharia is has been changing in different periods of history. This presents a complex problem to the contemporary world of Islam, which still seems to be in search of its true identity. It is gradually becoming more apparent to Muslim intellectuals that the only meeting point amongst the clergy is their uncompromising de demand for the enforcement of Sharia. The Iranian revolution has further whetted the appetite of the mullah in countries where Sunni Muslims are a majority. According to them, if Khomeini can succeed, why must they fail? Beyond this lies their fantasia, the land of their dreams. The masses are confused. Would you prefer the word of God and that of the Holy Prophet of Islam? Or would you rather have men under a godless and fearless society to guide and shape your political manifestos? This question is extremely difficult for a common person who finds himself in a state of bewilderment and confusion. The masses in many Muslim countries adore Islam and would readily die for the will of God and the honor of the Holy Prophet of Islam. Yet, there is something within the whole scenario which leaves them confused, disturbed, and very uneasy. Despite the love of God and that of the Holy Prophet it invokes many a bloody memory of governments in the past, which were either under the influence of mullahs or exploited mullahism to their political advantage. As for the Muslim politicians, they seem to be divided and indecisive. Some cannot resist exploiting this situation by siding with the mullah and patronizing them. 
They cherish the secret hope, however, that at the time of elections, it will not be the mullah, but they who will be elected as stalwart champions of Sharia. The masses would prefer to trust them more as guardians of Sharia than the mullah. Life would be easier and more down to earth in their hands than under the stiff and uncompromising control of the custodians of heaven. Most scrupulous amongst the politicians are the foresighted ones who consider this to be a dangerous game. Alas, they are first turning into a minority. Politics and hypocrisy and truth and scruples, or for that matter, many noble virtue, do not seem to go hand in hand. By and large, the intellectuals are inclined ever more towards democracy. They love Islam, but are afraid of theocratic rule. They view democracy as an alternative to Islam, but genuinely believe that, as a political philosophy, it is the Holy Quran itself which propounds democracy. وَالَّذِينَ اسْتَجَابُوا لِرَبِّهِمْ وَأَقَامُوا الصَّلَاةَ وَأَمْرُهُمْ شُورًا بَيْنَهُمْ وَمِمَّا رَزَقْنَاهُمْ يُنْفِقُونَ Those who hearken to their Lord and observe prayer, and whose affairs are decided by mutual consultation, and who spend out of what we have provided for them. وَشَاوِرْهُمْ فِي الْأَمَرِ فَإِذَا عَزَمْتَ فَتْوَكَلْ عَلَى اللَّهِ إِنَّ اللَّهَ يُحِبُّ الْمُتَوَكِّلِينَ And consult them in matters of administration. And when thou art determined, then put thy trust wholly in Allah. Surely, Allah loves those who put their trust in him. As a net result of this tug of war between various factions, young Muslim countries like Pakistan find themselves in rigmarole of confusion and contradiction. The electorate is temperamentally averse to the return of the mullah to the constituent assemblies in any sizable number. Even at the height of Sharia fever, hardly 5 to 10% of the mullahs succeed in winning elections. Yet, having committed themselves to the law of God in return for additional support from the mullah, the politicians find themselves in a very unenviable position. Deep within, they are fully convinced that the acceptance of Sharia is in reality paradoxical to the principle of legislature through a democratically elected House of Representatives. If the authority for legislation lies with God, which a Muslim cannot deny, then, as a logical consequence, it is the divines and the mullahs who possess the prerogative of understanding and defining the law of Sharia. In this scenario, the whole exercise of electing legislative bodies would become futile and meaningless. After all, members of parliament are not required to sign only on the dotted lines where the mullah so indicates. It is rather tragic that neither the politician nor the intellectual has ever genuinely attempted to understand the, uh, the form or forms of government which the Holy Quran really propounds or recognizes. Divided loyalties between the states and the religion. There is no contradiction between the word of God and act of God. There is no clash between loyalty to one state and religion in Islam, but this question does not relate to Islam alone. There are many episodes in human history where many an established state was confronted with this question. The Roman Empire, particularly, during the first three centuries of the Christian period, 
blame Christianity for split loyalties between the empire and Christianity. This allegation from the state resulted in extremely barbaric and inhumane persecution of early Christians in their homes for the alleged crime of treason and disloyalty to the emperor. Such struggle between the church and the state has always been an important factor in shaping European history. Napoleon Bonaparte, for instance, blamed Roman Catholicism for divided loyalties and asserted that the first loyalty would be to the French people and the government of France, and no Vatican Pope would be permitted to govern the affairs of Roman Catholics in France, nor would Roman Catholicism be permitted to interfere in the affairs of the state. In recent history, my own community, the Ahmadi Muslims in Pakistan, faced serious problems on similar grounds. As the influence of medievalist clergy began to rise under the patronage of General Muhammad Ziaul Haq, the longest ruling military dictator of Pakistan. Ahmadis became increasingly popular victims of this age-old accusation of divided loyalties. The government of Pakistan, under General Zia, even proceeded to issue a sort of white paper against Ahmadis, proclaiming that Ahmadis were neither loyal to Islam nor to the state of Pakistan. It was the same spirit of madness possessing new subjects. The wine remains the same though the goblets have changed. More recently, during the notorious Salman Rushdie affair, Muslims in Britain and many parts of Europe faced a similar problem of being accused of possessing divided loyalties, although its intensity did not reach a fever, a fever pitch, yet the potent damage it poses to inter-community relations should not be underestimated. Should religion have exclusive legislative authority? It is a universal phenomenon, therefore, which has never been seriously investigated. Neither politicians nor religious leaders have ever resolved the thin blue dividing line between religion and the state. As far as the Christians are concerned, this issue should have stood resolved once and for all when Jesus gave the historic reply to the Pharisees. Then he said to them, Pay back therefore Caesar's things to Caesar, but God's things to God. These few words are profoundly rich with wisdom. All that need be said has been. Religion and statecraft are two of the many wheels of the wagon of society. It is in reality irrelevant whether there are two, four, and eight wheels as long as they keep their orientation correct and revolve within their orbits, there can be no question of mutual conflict or confrontation. In total agreement with its earlier divine teachings, the Holy Quran elaborates this theme by clearly dem demarcating the sphere of activities of each component of society. It will be oversimplifying the matter if one conceives that there is no meeting point or common ground which religion and the state share with each other. They do indeed overlap, but only in a spirit of cooperation with each other. There is no intent to monopolize. For instance, a large part of moral education in each religion becomes an integral part of legislation in every state of the world. In some states, it may constitute a small part, in others a relatively larger part of the law. The penalties prescribed may be mild or harsh, 
but religious disapprovals against many crimes which are penalized are always traceable without reference to religion. Though they may be in disagreement with many secular laws, yet as far as people belonging to different religions are concerned, they seldom choose to come in confrontation with the established governments on such issues. This applies not only to Muslims or Christians, but to all religions of the world equally as well. Of course, the pure Hindu laws of Manusmati are at complete variance with the secular rule of political governments in India. Yet, somehow, people seem to live in a state of compromise. If religious law were invoked seriously against the prevailing political systems in different countries, the world would most certainly turn into a bloodbath. But fortunately for man, this is not so. As far as Islam is concerned, there should be no such problem because the ultimate and unyielding principle propounded by Islam in this regard is the principle of absolute justice. This principle remains central and fundamental to all forms of governments which claim to be Islamic in spirit. Alas, this most pivotal point in understanding the Islamic concept of statecraft is little, if at all, understood by the political thinkers in Islam. They fail to make a distinction between the application of the common law relating to crimes, which are universal in nature and without any religious bearing, and such crimes as are specific to certain injunctions of that religion. Therefore, only adherents of such religions are liable for prosecution. These two categories are not clearly defined. There is a fair size of gray area where common crimes can have religious or moral bearing, as well as rank as offenses against accepted human norms. For instance, the act of stealing is a crime varying in degrees of condemnation and prescribed punishment. Similarly, there is the question of murder, drinking and public disorder, which are partially or wholly forbidding by many religions. Some religions have prescribed specific punishments for these offenses. The question then arises as to how a state should dispense with such crimes. The, this question raises further the question of whether Islam at all gives a clear-cut and well-defined formula for a Muslim government and for a non-Muslim government to adopt. If a Muslim government has been defined as such in Islam, then other very important questions will be raised. Example, the validity of any state considering itself under some specific religious instruction and imposing that religion's teachings upon all its citizens irrespective of whether or not they belong to that religion. Religions have a duty to draw the attention of the legislature to moral issues. It is not necessary that all legislation be placed under the jurisdiction of religions. With so many different sects and shades of varying beliefs between one sect and another and one religion and another, nothing short of total confusion and anarchy would be the result. Take, for instance, the punishment for alcohol. Although it is forbidden in the Holy Quran, there is no punishment specified by the Quran itself. Reliance is placed on some traditions, which are challenged by various schools of jurisprudence. In one locality or country, the punishment would be one thing and completely another elsewhere. Ignorance of the law would be rampant. What holds true for Islam is also true for other faiths. 
the Talmudic law would be totally impractical. The same can be said about Christianity. A believer of any religion can practice his beliefs even under a secular law. He can abide by truth without any state law interfering with his ability to speak the truth. He can observe his prayers and perform his acts of worship without the need of a specific law being passed by the state to permit him to do so. This question can also be examined from another interesting angle. If Islam agrees with the question of a Muslim government in countries where Muslims are in the majority, then by the same token of absolute justice, Islam must concede the right to other governments to govern the countries according to the dictates of the religion of the majority. Therefore, in the next-door neighbor, India, Pakistan will have to concede Hindu law for all Indian citizens. That being so, it will indeed be a very tragic day for more than 100 million Indian Muslims who would lose all their rights to honorable survival in India. Again, if India is to be ruled by Manusmati, why should the state of Israel be denied the right to rule the Jews as well as the Gentiles by the law of Talmud? If this happens, life would become extremely miserable not only for the people of Israel, but also a large number of Jews themselves. But this concept of different religious states in different countries can only have a valid place in Islam if it propounds that in countries with a Muslim majority, Islamic Sharia must prevail by force of law. This will again create a universally paradoxic situation because, on the one hand, in the name of absolute justice, all states will be provided with the right to impose upon its people the law of the majority religion. On the other hand, each act of the religious minority in the countries of the world would be brought under the severe rule of a religion in which they do not believe. This will be an affront to the very concept of absolute justice. This dilemma has neither been addressed nor attempted to be resolved by the proponents of Islamic law in the so-called Muslim states. According to my understanding of Islamic teachings, all states should be run on the same principle of absolute justice and as such, every state becomes a Muslim state. In view of these arguments and the overriding concept of there being no compulsion in matters of faith, religion does not need to be the predominant legislative authority in the political affairs of a state. I end at page 241.